nowadays, my gut kind of tells me that you need a pretty convincing reason for why your game needs the blockchain. And if you just slap that on your deck, it's going to be perceived as a negative because if you're, that means that your primary product isn't backable. Hi friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. This is the one podcast for you to stay up to date with all the latest game business news and how they could impact the future of the industry. I'm joined today by Anthony Pecorella, co-founder of Level Up Labs and Navic contributor, also Alex Take. So yeah, you know Alex as the Metacast co-host for the Crypto Corner and also Jos van Drunen, investor at New Brooklyn, host for the Unboxing podcast, book author, and professor at NYU. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Yost, how do you have time for all of these professions? You know, there's actually four of me. I have three identical. So Alex, I always ask a random question when someone joins a round Mm -hmm. table for the first time. And I have clearly a favorite question, which is about what's your favorite animal to pet in game? It can be a real animal. It can be a fantasy animal. Oh, a chocobo for sure. <gasps> yes. Yeah. There's nothing better than going to the chocobo farm and just petting. Hello. Love, Hello, friend. Love, oh, the chocobo yeah. music is so fun. Yeah. It's quite uh, jubilant. Um, I definitely had a couple of favorite chocobos in Final Fantasy 15, which I think was just an excellent use of them since you mm-hmm. like, you know, for all of Final Fantasy 15's flaws, like, you definitely can ride chocobos around in this big open world expanse and run really fast. And it's kind of exciting. Um, so I had like four or five and some, some of them were like neon pink. It was, it was exciting. Oh, so wow. definitely a chocobo. I love this. Okay. We can be chocobo friends. Um, before we move on to the updates, just want to do a couple of shout outs. So Q3 invest games, gaming deals report that's now available to download. We're going to have Anton Gorodeski join us for an episode in December to do a whole overview of um, the acquisitions market during this year. And then also a shout out to Simon Slee, who commented on last week's YouTube video, adding a valuable application of generative AI. I always appreciate when listeners join into the conversation. So thank you for adding that comment. And I have the first update today that's very close to my heart is called What are Cozy Games and What Makes Them Cozy? So this was an article from gamesindustry.biz and it made my heart really warm. So cozy games are best defined by how they make players feel. I thought it was a very interesting definition because usually we settle on a genre on first-person shooter because you're shooting people in first person. But cozy games is all about that feeling. And it makes it very hard as a game developer to try to encapsulate that feeling into the game design. So it brings all of these extra challenges if you're a studio building this kind of game. So I think this genre is here to stay, and this is what the article concluded, and I completely agree with it. Currently, the Switch platform is the favored platform for this kind of games, but I totally know that there's a market for it on mobile, simply for my willingness to the studios to just take my money if I can be on my phone, very warm, very cozy, in a world that can sometimes be quite lonely and cold. So yeah, there's a market for this, and I'm very excited to see what's going out there. If you're building a cozy game, connect with me on LinkedIn, please. I want to know all about it. My thought on this is is very simple. It's um, I got back into Candy Crush, 
And Candy Crush advertises with like swipe the stress away. And I've mm. found it to be very stressful. In fact, this is not a relaxing <laughs> game at all anymore. It's like constantly like, get more of these extras because you suck at this game. And so I think perhaps this is a reaction to uh, free-to-play monetizations. And like, you're just stressing me out with all this, you know, microtransactions. Yeah, but because I guess I, it's... It's also like, I think the cozy game mechanic already exists inside a lot of other bigger RPGs. Um, mm-hmm. And there's definitely parts of Pokemon or Animal Crossing or even something like Persona or Fire Emblem that could be described as cozy. Like going to the Chocobo petting farm is like a cozy mm-hmm. part of the experience. I actually think that this is just more like taking like a mini game that you might have in like a kingdom hearts or something like that. And then mm-hmm. just like blowing it up into like a real full fledged genre. Just be in this space for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, true. that's true. When I played persona, I always went back to the cafe to make some cafe <laughs> and hang out in Absolutely. a cool, cool little mm-hmm. warm environment. But anyway, after all of this adorableness, we move on to a less happy topic, which is uh, Australia's loot box bill. So, Yost, you have to do this transition. Okay, so what makes games cozy is not being shaken down by some kind of mafia. And, uh, and, and games industry can kind of err on the side of, you know, acting like mafia. So the, the lead into this is, of course, a courtesy of Electronic Arts. When they released a game that was so expensive and so rigorously trying to monetize microtransactions and loot boxes that, you know, it was somebody calculated it would cost you like $1,300 to get a pink Darth Vader in a battlefront. And so it ends up basically being the result of the industry's own aggressive revenue innovations. Let's call it that that regulators have taken um, a sort of a, a more staunch approach to it, saying like, well, this isn't cozy at all. This is, in fact, very detrimental. So in Australia then, uh, this week, we had uh, MP Andrew Wilkie introducing a bill, which does nothing else except for the fact that it uh, requires a specification that any computer game containing a loot box has to be classified as basically rated R. Uh, you know, it has to have a warning on it. And making more obvious to consumers that uh, as you're playing this game, you're going to be asked to buy bundles of items and you may win something or you may not, but uh, your money's gone either way, right? It's a, um, it's sort of a, a regulatory response to some of the practices that we've seen over the last few years. So right. you can question a few different things. Go ahead. So it's less heavy handed than, for example, the bill in the Netherlands or Belgium, where it's a complete ban. Yes, right. So the, the I mean, that, and that was uh, so the Belgians. So across the country, across the different countries and regulators, they all kind of tend to compare loot boxes to gambling mechanics to varying degrees. They kind of turn the dial to you know to different strengths, but it ends up being while it's similar to it, so therefore we don't want it. Uh, particularly the Belgians, um, they did the same thing with social casino games five six years ago. We're not having it. It's not allowed. Go away. Stop it in Belgium. And it's, um, the Dutch are never far behind. The UK is similar in that sense, too. They tend to be very hesitant to accept and adopt these things uh, as normal. Because the children, think of the children, right? It's the, uh, and I think that that's a valid case, uh, not just because I'm a dad, but because I think that that's, you know, th- some of these innovations, they just kind of, you just end up in the wrong part of the, 
uh, you know, whatever monetization strategy. So the Australians doing this, what's interesting for me about this is, of course, uh, it's a little bit of a, a, a watered-down version, as you point out. At the same time, what I like so much is the abundance of data and research that comes with this, right? So this bill was introduced after uh, about a year ago. They had this huge inquiry, a five-month-long period where they have all these people and researchers submit their opinions and their data and their thoughts. And it's just a treasure trove of information as to like how this all plays out and why it would be good or bad. Um, and so we think that that's, that's, a, that's one of the main benefits, right? So you have this transparent process, which I think some governments could learn from, right? Rather than unilaterally sending something down the line saying, we're not doing this, they open up this forum and it creates a much broader conversation about the games industry. Yeah, that's so actually... So that's, that's my first one. That's actually exactly what the UK did a lot of research and now there's a commission where people from mm -hmm. the industry with Yuki are trying to understand how to design loot boxes that prevent these negative consequences. But just to, yeah. just to confirm, this is just a bill that was introduced. It's not regulation yeah. yet. It still needs it's to not be regulation voted yet, on. But it's okay. expected to be expected to be accepted. Yeah, if I yeah. could jump in here, um, I mean, we've been working on, at least I personally have had exposure to working on the loot box bill problem since like 2017. I was working right. on the Overwatch um, monetization system, which is obviously very prevalent with, with loot boxes. And we had the Belgium regulation that was passed basically, I think like 2018 or something like that, uh, or in that time zone. Um, and we had been doing a lot of contingency planning, right, for what happens to Overwatch and its business model if in the case that all of a sudden there's mass scale, like global regulation that loot boxes don't exist. And mm -hmm. so, but when you were reading some of the statements made by the politicians, right, you can definitely see that it's a platform to run on, right? Because for the children, it's a very, um, parents don't understand it. Politicians need something to sort of, that is um, almost like that emotional cornerstone to like get parents angry. And so I felt that a lot of the information that was being shared from the voice of, there's a Hawaiian politician, um, I forget his name, I mean, it was like, something Lee, who was basically just like writing about all these kind of derogatory things that video games are and the violence and all. It's almost kind of like this like whole like jumbled up mess where the only thing that people can say about video games is violence and gambling. And mm -hmm. in reality, like, you know, what we ended up doing was kind of showing drop rates. Same thing with Hearthstone. It's another card pack model. Showing drop rates, um, guaranteeing um, kind of like downside protection. So making sure that you're guaranteed like a golden common or a golden card, like every so often in, in terms of how many packs you open. And so I think there's a lot of ways to avoid this and soften this by just being clear with the value proposition that you're giving to a consumer when you have a loot box economy. And, and furthermore, like it also just such a cultural difference between the West and the East. I mean, like gotcha mechanics are just like not, no one even thinks about that stuff in, in, in Asia. Mm. Like it is just the de facto way to acquire things. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think the other thing is that Belgium's a relatively small market. So is potentially Australia. And so I think in terms of mm -hmm. being afraid, I think when the bigger Western countries start to really like pass bills and, and do regulation, I think that's when, you know, people in the game industry should start really maybe planning for the contingency that loot boxes will get um, yeah. banned. And I think that's actually a really good segue into Anthony's update about mobile versus console growth. Yeah, um, this came out of a um, an article that was discussing um, basically the the technology that mobile has um, powering its graphics and its interactions and immersion compared to console. Uh, the next generation of consoles is expected to be somewhere around twenty twenty seven. So, you know, we have 
quite a few years until then. Meanwhile, um, mobile is being updated. I mean, even every individual company is putting out a new device every year. And so we're seeing actual new devices on almost a monthly basis now. Um, that combined with the fact that, you know, the PS5 versus PS4, there are differences there, but there's so much more subtle than like PS1 versus PS2. Um, gamers who you know, know to look for you know, various things like the you know, anti-aliasing and particle effects and, um, you know, they can spot those, but it's almost takes a trained eye now to be able to see the difference between um, graphics and, you know, the, will that continue to be the case for the next generation? Meanwhile, phones are, you know, quickly catching up in terms of, you know, their high fidelity uh, and the types of graphics that they can produce. So, you know, I, I expect, you know, average players really to not be able to see a difference from a pure visual perspective um, between mobile and, and consoles. I mean, some now and certainly within a few years, I think that's, that's very expected. Uh, so then it becomes a question of like, you know, immersion and the experience that they provide. Because I think one of the core questions is, is mobile going to replace consoles? Um, and, and I guess that's sort of an initial question. Like if we looking at um, Switch and the Steam Deck, like we're starting to have a lot more docking of attaching a small device to a TV and getting a console-like experience out of it. Um, with the power of phones, like are, is there even gonna need to be a next generation or will we start to just dock our phone when we want to have a big screen experience? Like, I'm, so I guess I'll put that out there as to uh, thoughts on that. <laughs> I don't think the console market is going anywhere. Um, I mean, maybe that's a counterpoint, which, uh, like counterintuitive, but I think that there's a level of content and the experience of playing on a console that I think people are really, um, it's, it's very sticky and it's something that's ingrained in the gamer um, mentality and the psyche of the way they play. I mean, yeah, it's true. Like, for example, like, yeah, TikTok short content is there, but that doesn't mean someone's not going to go see like a full, full-fledged feature film. I think there's room for both of these experiences in the market. So I don't think that mobile is going to like suddenly eat away console. I think your question about docking the phones, I think is interesting because that would, that's more just like the um, implementation level rather than the actual experience level. So if I can, my, can use my phone to make a console experience, I think those are two different things, but I think like the people will still always want the console experience. I mean, just like look at the God of War like sales in the past like two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was clearly a demand for this like high fidelity AAA content. Mm -hmm. And if you can make that on a phone, well, then that's the, the second question. But I think the console experience is here for the long haul. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with Alex. The, um, you know, and I would say that based on the timeline you give, like you, you say by 2025, right? That's, that's a little short notice for all of this to be bifurcated in such a way. Uh, you know, I do believe, yeah, so there's, there's, there's parallels where, you know, you spend 1500 bucks on like at a, an iPad pro and you're like, Oh, I'm going to use this as a laptop. Now. No, you're not. It's totally not going to help you do any of that. Right. It's, it's kind of like you're in a pinch if you're on the road, if you're not trying to bring all these adapters. So, you know, the inevitable solution there is like cloud gaming, but even then, you know, it's like, is that the best device to access all this, all these libraries? Uh, you know, I can't get away from the controllers. Like, it's just, for console experience, that's just ideal. So just form factor, uh, when it comes to timeline, when it comes to, like, I believe that the fidelity, uh, as you put it, is like, that makes sense. Like, most people don't notice. 
But it's a dedicated experience for the same reason that people will go to the movie theater. That should have been done years ago, if you think about it. But it's just fun to socialize and hang out and have the big screen and just sit back and relax. Like maybe, uh, you know, expand on that experience rather than replace it. So they don't necessarily exclude each other. But I do think that they can learn from each other, right? I think console got much wiser because of mobile. And I think mobile is really pushing its boundaries because it's always going to be compared to console. So it, there's a very good sort of productive relationship between the two that they should, you know, for the same reason that you have soap series and quiz shows and reality TV and whatever, uh, Top Gun 2, and like these big productions that make you cry. So, so, so that's kind of how I see that future. But I don't yeah, know. Would, I, you, I, would, you, would you, like, how does that work with crossplay? Sorry. Alex. Oh, sorry. And I mean, this is a little bit tangential to that, but I think similarly to this like docking experience, I'm not a technical expert, right? But I, I, I would just, like right now, let's take the switch, right? Which is optimized for the handheld experience and has docking capabilities. But we know that some of those are pretty weak. Um, I think the switch is actually powered by NVIDIA's old Tigra chips, which um, NVIDIA sold off to Qualcomm because like NVIDIA was like, oh, we're going to do mobile chips and then they didn't that didn't work out for nvidia and so they basically um kind of divested that side of the business and that's clearly like not doing very well it's powered by a a chip that's intended for mobile but it's not doing very well translating back and forth to a bigger screen experience i don't know how it is for like mobile phones specifically but one would suppose that maybe optimizing the mobile experience is not always just going to it's not going to be like a one-to-one easy translation onto a larger screen so there's also some sort of like hardware capabilities that like might need to to increase, but again, I'm going to caveat that with I'm not a technical expert <laughs> on 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 these types of things. But you know, there's a reason why the PS5 comes in a, is like this big, like mm. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, especially as consoles. Why they want to build it that way, right? It would have been a lot smaller. Especially as consoles start being built to power VR as well, so the ability to power VR with mobile. I don't know if we'll ever get there. We'll probably get there one day, but not not in the midterm future. Actually, I I think this this conversation will continue into uh, mainland China's console market discussion. Just looking at the platforms that um, they favor. So, excluding established IPs that have these massive marketing treasure chests. The answer is no, not in the near nor midterm future. And we're going to be diving into why that is. The no comes with some exceptions, of course. Uh, as a product manager, I love if statements. So if the game is cross-platform and is tailored for mobile, the answer is different. Uh, if you are going to be trying to release a, a popular console game, favoring free-to-play over premium can also bring an advantage but still, if you're purely a console game, um, going through the regulations doesn't really bring that much upside. We'll dive into that further. There's also the technical cost and finding the right partner to reduce the opportunity cost of an internal team working on this deal. So if you have a really good partner that will take most of the cost of doing this, well, then it's still worth analyzing. And then additionally, if the game is console or PC only, the best strategy is to translate the game into simplified Chinese and then sell it through the import market. Because uh, Elden Ring is a great example of this. It was majorly successful in mainland China, but it's not going through the appropriate legal domestic market. It's all through the Steam, uh, mm-hmm. which we'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll dive into as well. Um, so the first, the first question I was trying to investigate is what kind of games are successful in this market? 
So it's generally targeting esports and RPGs. So most of the esport market is in mobile and PC, not on console. But looking at the games that perform well on console, it still seems to be multiplayer games and RPGs. I mean, I don't know. I think it depends on whether or not when you say console, right? Do you just mean like a Western AAA title that has maybe potentially a PC port? Or do you mean something that's built first for PC? Because like, for example, on the I, I worked on the NetEase deal for WoW that got canceled. And I also have lots of exposure to the NetEase JV partnership um, from my work at Blizzard. And, you know, we always kind of talked about, you know, bending over backwards kind of to basically get these games to be shippable in China. You know, that China don't like skeletons. What does Diablo have? Lots of skeletons. You have to remove all the skeletons. And so it's like, it's funny because we're talking about kind of like, what's the replacement for um, the partnership that just fell through? And we're like, ah, Taiwan VPN. Like, that'll be the replacement. <laughs> and like, yeah, we shipped D3. Um, well, we shipped a D3 switch port and tons of unit sales in just adjacent countries around China, mm-hmm. right? So I think it just really depends on like, are you talking about like taking God of War and targeting that towards a Chinese market? Or are you talking about kind of any Western title that has a PC component to it and targeting that towards the Chinese market? Because we all know that nobody in China has a PlayStation or an Xbox. Like that's just not the way they typically engage, right? I mean, I've seen PLs for at least almost all the Blizzard titles and in China, there's just like no console revenue um right but it's all pc um but you know elden ring is just a port or right or an optimized experience on pc or it's both right i'm not sure i fully understand your question so the habit is on in in china's market is definitely mobile and pc there's mm-hmm. no doubt about it i believe the numbers i've saw is that console game sales about four percent and it's only projected to grow from 4.1 to 4.4 percent by 2026 like that's how small that market is Mm -hmm. and that's including gray market sales so this is when we're talking about console about what the experience looks like nowadays is i believe 80 percent of consoles in the market are from the gray market because the due to the regulations the games that are available for domestic regulated consoles are extremely limited. So the Xbox Game Pass is not available. The PlayStation Plus has a different library of games. And then if we look at outside of subscriptions, the the games are limited in nature, again, due to the regulations, but also because there's that ethics committee that defines what kind of games are ethical for the, the community to play. And so... This is why when I was talking about whether if you're a console studio, if you should be targeting this market, if it's a no, um, because you can actually get more revenue by going through that gray market and just yeah, not, not going through the regulation process. Also having your game available on PC, on Steam, that's also not regulated yet. Does that answer, Alex? Yeah, well, that's exactly what I mean. You should definitely mm-hmm. not be targeting the China console PC, like, if, sorry, China, Sony, and Xbox market. There is no market. That is not a thing. <laughs> but I'm like, but what I'm saying is like, there's like the, um, in, in the say, and let's say that in the way that we think about consumer behavior, there's the job to be done, which is playing this game, mm-hmm. right? I think that if you're, if you're talking about the China console market in the sense that you want to give them a console-like experience, the job to be done would be to hide the high, fidelity triple a experience i think that that's something worth going after but like to actually target the people who have xboxes and playstation fives like right that's stupid 
sorry. Yeah, if you're targeting the market, it has to be cross-platform. And so the reason why I decided to look into this analysis is because Sony's doing announced a third round of investment into Chinese developed games. So it's called the PlayStation China Hero Project Program. And I believe in the two phases before, they have invested in about 17 games and they're going to publish at least a couple of them. And now for the third phase, they're looking to invest in more, they say far exceeding the number of games that they invested in. And so Mm -hmm. part of trying to grow the console market is that console market barely exists because the content is limited. And there's favorite habits because there was a ban also for about 15 years on consoles being sold in mainland China. And so the habits have just developed for mobile and for PC. And that plus the content being lacking, it's extremely hard to grow that console that console market. And so Sony is making these investments because especially looking at their relation with Oyoverse and the success of Genshin Impact, they, they could potentially try to build that market of console by investing in domestic developed games that are high quality for players to engage with. It's, it's, just, it's, it's the weirdest experience but to see how the discouragement of the Chinese government has been so effective. So I, I would, um, for a while, so I, I did a case study and there's a, a friend of mine who used to work at Microsoft. He was part of that launch of the Xbox in China. And it's just, it's just a cataclysmic situation where you know, they would have to advertise the Xbox. And so, so, my, so, so of course, Xbox had this sort of uh, dream under Steve uh, Ballmer still, like, oh, we're going to just break into this market. There's lots of people there. We're going to launch the Xbox. And then that gives us a leg up on, on Sony. So they did. They spent a ton of money. And I think in the end, they sold like maybe a million units, which for China is nothing. But, but the process of how that conversation went with the Chinese government was just, you know, idiotic. They said, no, they basically positioned the console as this device in your house where you switch from homework into fitness. And, and, and then it was watching your favorite show with your mom on the couch, as opposed to I'm in my basement having a blast. It's like, no, it's, it's all sort of advertised as parentally guided entertainment and like noble educational pursuits. And so, so that fault, that's such a weird way of marrying in my mind, you know, what the console stands for everywhere else. And that su- succeeded to some degree, of course, because Microsoft is very wealthy and they could just really push that and, and they made all these concessions and they subsidized all this content to just kind of get some critical mess. And it just didn't work in the end, right? And then Sony kind of walked through the door now opened by Microsoft and kind of did their thing. They're probably a little closer um, to make that reality, but still, it's like it's just so actively discouraged because the Chinese government thinks of them basically as in in home gambling machines and slot machines. And I think there's also just the fundamental fact that the GDP per capita in a country like China is not as high compared to the United States. I mean, you well, sure. people typically have to just pick one thing. Same thing in even when we were looking at the graphic card value requirements for something like a crossfire, right? In Korea, like those kinds of games with like low frame rates can do well there because people don't have the kind of graphic cards that can run the specs. And so same mm-hmm. thing goes with this sort of situation. I think like, you know, U S is like fifth in the world for GDP per capita. Like China's like 60th or something. Um, you know, if you already have a phone, that's why, right? You already have a phone, like you can't buy a console and a PC, like you need to kind of like pick one thing. So I think Mm -hmm. the gray market demand is definitely there, but 
Um, you know, there's a huge amount of people in China, but that's just, that doesn't mean anything if they don't have deep pockets and console is a deep pocket market. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, that that, that rhymes with like Brazil, where you would have like so many uh, import taxes that a PlayStation would cost like 2,000 US dollars <laughs> for the average Brazilian. It's like, that's never going to happen, right? But it's, you're absolutely right. Like there's just a the fundamental economics on it. Yeah, and in terms of the Chinese, um, well, mainland China's mobile market, it's also that the access to mobile devices has just boomed, and that brought in a more diverse audience tapping into the female gamers that are starting to become gamers and gaining those habits. Additionally, I know that the government is doing a lot of investment into 5G and cloud gaming growth, so I think the market will accelerate further for mobile and console will have a very hard time to catch up if they will ever catch up. Uh, interesting side tidbit um, for uh, targeting and genres. Um, I think in large part because of that 15 year ban on consoles, um, we found that games with a sort of like retro pixelated um, aesthetic do very, very poorly in China um, because there is no sense of um, nostalgia associated with it. Like it just looks like bad graphics. Um, whereas, you know, our generation grew up playing those Nintendo, just, you know, nothing like that existed there. So, um, if, if you're working on something in that, uh, kind of aesthetic, uh, definitely don't, don't target China. I was looking at, um, the, the revenue. So based on what Alex was saying about the the purchasing power in China, alongside the market being so small, just just for a comparison, console game sales in Japan totaled $3.85 billion, whilst in China, it just drove $156 million. And we're looking, we're looking at only legal console game sales. So then if we consider the gray market, we're comparing $3.85 billion in Japan with $2.16 billion in China. So it jumps from 156 million to 2 billion. Yeah, but there's also like three people in Japan and like a billion people in China. So three Japanese people are just like spending the shit out of it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you got to respect I'm half Japanese. You got to respect the the gaming, the gaming drive. But it's Mm -hmm. yeah, it's there's a delta. So I wanted to take a look additionally to the market's risks because there's a great reliance of the console market into navigating this gray area that has not been regulated yet. We're also looking at PC where a lot of games manage to target the market through Steam that has not been regulated yet. So that's one of the main risks for the market is if the people's government of China decides to start cracking down on these gray markets so that you can only purchase and play consoles and games that were acquired domestically. There's one really popular e-commerce platform called JD.com that has started to crack down on not selling gray market games to prevent a potential, uh, I don't know, fine or consequence in the future. Yeah, I mean, I I think the... When you've got a government that, as you just pointed out, is can be so effective at um, you know, reducing the market um, potential and uh, you know very little control over when they will decide that they want to do that, um, I, I think that represents a, a tremendous risk. And um, you know, for a variety of reasons, the the model that I I feel like I've seen the most 
have the most success and certainly are would be the most comfortable with if I'm not a, a huge company or maybe if I am, is finding those partnerships in China where um, you know there you, you work with Tencent or something and they take on the kind of the responsibility and the, the financial risk of making sure that you can distribute. But um, yeah, it's it's a, a tremendous risk that it could just be pulled out from under you at any point and you'd have no control over it and, and it'd be done. Um, and I think you, you really do have to control for that um, if you want to make any serious push into it. And adding on to that in terms of the out of your control is also the licensing. So last week we were discussing the licensing for mobile, but for console, the slowdown is even worse. Looking at the number of mobile games, that even though it's a lower number, mobile games still being approved, especially domestically uh, developed games. If we look at console, barely any games are being approved, and especially then if we even look at internationally developed uh, console games, the number is just tiny. And so there's a massive risk there that even if you do get a partner, um, if you hopefully you choose the right partner to reduce these costs and these uh, risks, but your your game could take years in order to be approved. Um, additional to this risk, there's also just a general geopolitical risk that we've been discussing where sanctions could be established. So especially if we're looking at the reliance of the console market onto the gray market, if due to geopolitics, there's some bans on imports or commerce that could also impact. We saw the difference in terms of the numbers of how much reliance there is. Um, and then the last risk that I also analyzed is that the restrictions for young players and there, that's one risk is more restrictions. But going on to the restrictions that currently exist is that the esports industry that gaming in general in China relies on is that it's reducing the talent that's available to get into esports because you need to be training like in any sport, you have to be training from a young age. And if you can only spend that time training seriously once you're um, an adult, that means that it's not a viable career. And I've been reading quite a lot about the esports culture there, and there are serious concerns about um, mainland China-based esports teams that are already suffering from lack of talent to join them. Yeah, they cap the player hours. Like, mm -hmm. there's a literal law that says like you cannot play more than two hours a day or something like that. Yeah, there's. I think um, you can play one hour on Friday, one hour on Saturday, and another yeah, sorry, hour two hours on, a week. on Sunday. <laughs> Good luck. No, I'm really not kidding. Yeah. It's yeah. like, because again, like, because I think these regulations came out, um, uh, uh, like right at the tail time that I was at Blizzard 2 and you're like, oh shit, World of Warcraft, like, oh no, like <laughs> the hours, like, and you know, obviously don't know if that's going to be enforced, but it's, you know, that's a huge, I think what Maria is saying is totally accurate. If you can't play six, seven hours of video games a day, like you're not going to have the reflexes to turn into faker. It's just a fundamental fact. Like <laughs> when I was a kid, my mom handed me a GMAT vocabulary book. <laughs> and I learned the word loquacious when I was six. Loquacious. So you can do Ooh. that. You can hand your kid a vocab book and they can get really good at taking standardized tests. Oh, so. I, I was just put into competitive swimming. And just, just <laughs> that too. Two, I played two hours a week, you were, you were swimming. <laughs> more, more than that. Um, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll wrap up this, um, this discussion just to reiterate the conclusion, if you're a console studio, it's not valuable to target mainland China's market directly through the regulation route. Okay, so now, yeah, Alex, is it yeah. Web3 investment? All right. Um, I hope 
you guys will be patient with me. I'm about to be that like a uh, screaming duck meme. Um, the one that's like, <gasps> and then it shouts um, with the, the double horizontal gift generator. Um, but the, the topic that we're kind of be discussing is like with all this FTX um, blow up and the kerfuffle that kind of happened, like should founders fundamentally still be considering building a Web3 gaming studio? And would the investment come easier if they build a free-to-play game? And so I've got a bunch of reasons for this, but I think generally the TLDR answer is yes. Yes being you should still build Web3 games. Um, I actually don't think that any of this stuff is a deterrent for Web3, really. Um, and now here's, here's why. So first, I think it's true that we've seen blockchain gaming investments decline since Q2 2022. But I don't think that's a really like a signal that you shouldn't be building. I think it's more a example of investors learning to be careful with their capital. Um, you know, you could argue that prior it was they were too loose with their capital. So I don't think that anybody should be building a studio based on the thesis that this is going to get funded. Um, I think generally a VC can sniff this out. And I mean, again, FTX did pull a fast one on a lot of really amazing investors. But, you know, I think people in the past did pivot their projects to Web3 out of survival. But nowadays, my gut kind of tells me that you need a pretty convincing reason for why your game needs the blockchain. And if you just slap that on your deck, it's going to be perceived as a negative um, now because if you're, that means that your primary product isn't backable and you're just basically putting in this buzzword to get it funded. So that's the first reason. One, like just don't build something because you think it's going to get funded. Um, that's not exactly the, that's not exactly what a VC is looking for in an entrepreneur. The second reason is that there's actually plenty of dry capital to the tune of around five billion out in the wild. Um, the latest data from PitchBook reveals that um, yes, the investment is down in Q3 of 2022, and obviously, as I stated for blockchain specifically down in Q2 of 2022, um, which is, you know, more than 50% year over year. But that doesn't necessarily detract from the fact that VCs are sitting on previously raised capital. Um, and VCs still have to fill the mandate to find the best and hottest entrepreneurs. And furthermore, you've got players that are not maybe even bespoke VCs like Game7, who just announced that they're going to issue 100 million in grants to upcoming Web3 startups. And this stuff is specifically meant to target Web3. So if you were to, even if you were to follow the logic that a lot of the 5 billion of VC ecosystem capital isn't meant for Web3, which is also erroneous, there'd still be other stuff like this. And, you know, Andreessen's got their big crypto fund four, which is going to be something like a whopping 4.5 billion or something like that. So that's the second reason. Lots of dry powder. Third reason is there's tons of smart people, you know, giving this a shot on goal. I think Midnight just announced their 7.5 million seed. This is not to be confused with Midnight Society, which is Dr. Disrespect's Web3 FPS. There's Mighty Bear Games, Laguna Games, Mythical Games, Illuvium, Shrapnel, Azra, Court Loop, um, Limit Break. The list can go on, right? Uh, and so I think you could interpret this as it's getting crowded, but I think it's a positive signal that you have a lot of smart game developers trying to build in the space. Um, and, you know, it's a euphemism, but, you, you know, you don't want to follow people. And then finally, there's lots of Web2 companies um, with Web3 strategies like Nike Swoosh, um, Adidas, and Disney that are going to need solutions that are built by Web3 entrepreneurs with the DGEN DNA. And so the better the building here on picks and shovels, the better the Web3 studio development is going to get. And so kind of like my argument is that if you're a Web2 studio that makes money, um, or your Web2 company that makes money, making moves into Web3 is going to actually substantiate and qualify the people who are building. And if the infrastructure improves and the obstacles to making a Web3 game um, a nightmare, right, are actually going to go down. And so then therefore, the cost of building Web3 game 
is lower and therefore it's easier thing to do. Um, this is where the Phoenix Games investment is coming from. So if anybody was wondering, the mystery has been revealed. The mythical guy is left to go basically found Phoenix Games, which they've raised $150 million to do so for um, under a dual mandate, which is A, you know, be a publisher for Web3 blockchain gaming, and B, use its capital to invest in interesting and emerging free-to-play game developers. Um, so in reality, they're kind of more like a CVC slash publisher, and they're going to be kind of like, in my mind, like a devolver digital of Web3. Um, and so I think they're not picks and shovels, but they're um, like display case greenhouse, right? They just The Web3 content needs to be shown to people. And so I just ranted for a very, very long time. There's more, I think, in there. But um, the summary is that build a Web3 game if you believe in the ideology and the value it brings to your team and your players. Two, there's lots of money floating around everywhere. Three, there's lots of smart people building in Web3, which just means that it's exciting and um, you know a chance to define and create something new. And four, I think there's funding signals that indicate towards tooling, and tooling means better, better potential at mass adoption. Mass adoption is margin. Margin is fundable. Is the money there, there my, though? My bird meme is done. <laughs> is the money there, though, for Web3? I remember when, was it earlier in the year and last year, where if you just said, I'm building a Web3 studio, you get investment way easier if you're saying a free-to-play game, and that now is just tighter. You can't just say you're building a Web3 game, you have to Yeah, that's like make the right thing. <laughs> yeah, you should be making a good pitch. But that's not an argument against Web3. That's just an argument of not putting things that don't belong on your product on a pitch deck. Do you think there's enough reason to build with blockchain in mind first? Well, sorry, to build a studio that has blockchain in mind first? Is there enough evidence that it's a critical component to the success of your studio? That's for the founders to figure out. <laughs> hmm. I mean, that's, I think that, that, that's the testing, right? So lots of people are coming with pitch decks that say like, oh, blockchain is integral to my game for XYZ reasons. And um, what we're doing is you're funding the opportunity to test that thesis. Right. No one right now, I think, has found like the one thing that's like, oh, this must be used for this. And investors yeah, are still willing to take the shot to see if those experiments pan out. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there are there are funds that are specifically meant to be deployed against crypto, right? Um, and blockchain games. I mean, I think we are definitely seeing a um, uh, an evolution of what a, a Web three game means. Um, you know the we were going from, you know, basically a, a DeFi app with a, a simple, you know, graphical interface on top of it um, to things that are actual games um, that, you know, have to be fun, that need real game developers behind them. So, you know, I, you know, previously it was, yeah, you know, it was all driven by FOMO, like Alex, as you said, and, you know, if you slapped Web3 on it, you would get funded because everyone just was throwing money mm -hmm. around. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's certainly... I think it's harder to get funded in that it's no longer just sort of an automatic thing. Um, I agree that I, you know it's it's unclear how important Web three blockchain crypto is going to be going forward. Um, you know, there's it's hard I think to really make a case so far that your game has to have crypto to work. Um, I have, I've seen only a couple where they really kind of use that technology in a way that couldn't have been done otherwise. Um, and then we're also seeing, I think, a lot of, you know, realizing that the 
you know, a lot of the promises of crypto of free open market and, you know, public availability and all that um, leads to a lot of problems. And so we're, you know, seeing some shifting to more uh, consolidation and centralization in certain ways to provide security for um, in, you know, investors and, and people that are participating. And so, you know, I, I, th I think there is still a lot of interest out there. Like the, the technology is interesting. Um, if you can you know, create something that really has a reason for it, um, you know, as Alex was saying, like we, we are getting better tools. We're getting, you know, hopefully better onboarding. It's, you know, getting into crypto is as a, a user is getting a little bit easier as we go. Uh, so there's opportunity there, but um, it's the, the there's a lot more kind of rigorous due diligence required to um, really make a case for what you had, as opposed to just being able to relatively easily raise kind of an absurd amount of money. I, I agree with that. It's the, it's the um, and I appreciate Alex everything that you listed here. You know, I I definitely agree with you. I think I would add some nuance to it in terms of building things deliberately for one technology or another, you know, why not do both, right? Isn't crossplay sort of what has been the big success of so many different, like adding multiple revenue models to your, to your franchise. Like that's really been a big driver of success for major publishers. And in fact, I am, um, I think this, this recent collapse is actually a great, great moment for crypto and everybody else, because it just gets rid of all this like really centralized clutter, like all these billion dollar companies that are really just monolithically governing this whole space. So crypto isn't really anywhere near its potential purely because of the macro infrastructure. Um, you know, and it's, it reminds me a lot of this, of um, the 1984 video game crash, where you just had all these companies, all these manufacturers quickly just, producing very mediocre, undifferentiated hardware and software that nobody really understood to be different or exciting anyway. And then the whole thing collapsed. And then somebody showed up called Nintendo and made it, made it good. They were gatekeepers. They had incredible quality control. And so, so that tension, of course, is difficult to imagine in a decentralized universe, of course, because who's going to control the quality if it is supposed to be decentralized and so on. But you know, I think we grow, we go through these iterations and evolutions where um, you know you have to always think about what's fun for people to play and what's like worth their time and so on. And I think the number of people that are now entering the space from limit break on, you know, these are experienced, seasoned people, and that's the same uh, generational shift that you saw at early mobile, where you know, the successful companies then, like Supercell, those were all former digital chocolate people, and they had done this already. You know, so it's, um, you know, it's a batch of seasoned, senior, grizzled folks out there making stuff. So I think that that's very investable um, and there's a lot there. And so that the only thesis that I look at for all this is, um, you know, will people be spending more or less of their life online? Yes or no. And, and the answer to me is very obvious. Like it's only going to be more. And so that therefore they're going to want to have more ways to express themselves more way to connect with others more ways to transact with people in whatever format that uh, may take place uh, and at some point i also want to have cool things like the stuff behind me in my house i see a, a witcher poster there you know that's how people express themselves like you have your porto scarf like what the, what's the digital equivalent of that and ownership will be part of that right so for me all of that kind of comes down to like okay gaming is that sort of sticky layer in the middle and mm -hmm. there's enough money out there to keep trying it 
But yeah. so, of course, I'm not the creative entrepreneur in that sense. Like, I would I have no idea what to build for this. I yeah. just am fascinating, but I, it's just, you know, it's so early for all of us. I thought it was really cool what Sony released, mm-hmm. that it was these motion sensors that you can buy, and then it's hooked up to an app, and it can translate your body into this avatar. Mm-hmm. At least the video, it looks so cool. And it just made me really excited. Who knows? It might be a flop. Um, it's it's a bit expensive. I just thought it was very exciting, especially in terms of the world of the VTubers and making it more 3D, maybe uh, augmented reality where you can just dress up. You're still acting in the real world, but you're in this persona. Yeah, it's an exciting it's an exciting future. I was wondering, Alex, this this might be a bit uh, rumor gossipy. David would be happy if he were here and I were asking this. Do you know why um, the group of Phoenix Games felt that they had to leave Mythical? Because I thought Mythical was an investment <sighs> company in Web three. Were they not? Um. So I've also been asking around. Got friends at Dapper, and the, some of the mythical guys are ex-Blizzard, so been sort of they're like one of like the earlier, um, like I guess official, like or I guess AAA founded blockchain companies. Mm. Um, I think that there was, if I could guess, and this is kind of I put this piece together just from random Slack conversations, LinkedIn messages, and public sentiment, is that there's probably just like a shift in direction for what they want to build. I think maybe the people that were building the Blanco's block party and the people that had founded the studio, I think fundamentally wanted to do different things. Mm. Now I'm, again, this is just me spinning and like kind of like putting together a story based on the rumor bill. Um, But I think that's basically the question. And I think what they, what these guys are doing, like what the value proposition of Phoenix games, it's actually really, really, really needed for web three. Like mm-hmm. maybe more needed than another game studio that's just going to use blockchain technology. Because like right now, the distribution for Web3 games is quite difficult. And when you think about the role that a publisher plays for a Web2 game, it's it's massive, right? They're doing all localization. They're doing marketing, distribution, um, in-kind, right? Like it's actually somewhere you're hosting on, on a storefront, right? Those types of things Web3 developers don't have. So I actually think like someone needs to go do it. And I think maybe these guys thought that they they should but um, again that's just me yeah. hypothesizing don't have like confirmed um, yeah, statements yeah understood <laughs> cool thank you uh, we'll wrap up the episode here if you enjoyed the episode help us reach others by subscribing or leaving a comment on the platform that you're listening us from and like I said at the start I always really love hearing from you so if you have anything to add to the conversation just drop us a comment on YouTube you can listen to our other podcast content whoa maybe with Alex the crypto corner little plug here and yeah thank you so much for joining everyone it was lovely to have you on and we'll see you all next week